Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, if you weren't with us last week, we're continuing in our um, book, verse-by-verse study, through this great book of Ephesians. And we jumped back in last week, and we kind of picked up where we had left off earlier in the year last year, kind of looking at this passage in one unit of Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And really, this whole passage of Scripture talks about God's growth plan for the church. This morning, we'll be looking at the last part of it in verses 14, 15, and 16. And so the subtitle in your outline title this morning is The Building Up of the Body. The Building Up of the Body. So let me read the whole passage in its context if I can, and then we'll be concentrating on verses 14 through 16 this morning, The Building Up of the Body. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, we pray this morning as we dive into this text that you would teach us what it means for the body to build itself up in love. This day, I pray, God, that we would learn great things from your word so that we might do great things as a church, exalting Christ, spreading Christ's love to our community, and living Christ's love with each other. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in order to understand how the body of Christ can be built up and grow into mature manhood, I thought it might be helpful to take a moment and to uh, look at how God designed our human bodies to grow and develop. I mean, throughout the scripture, there's all kind of analogies between the body of Christ as a growing living organism, and uh, some of those can be deduced from just our physical bodies that exist that God created. For example, the human body has a total of 210 different cell types. The majority of cells in the body are classified as somatic cells, which are just body cells. Somatic cells make up the skin, hair, and muscle tissues, and they reproduce through a process called mitosis, which is the most common form of total body cell growth. Mitosis can happen when areas of the body are growing, when older cells are replaced, or when an area of the body becomes damaged or injured. And so mitosis aids the building up of the body when a cell duplicates its genetic material and then splits in half to form two complete cells that are identical to the original one. Overall, somatic cells are designed to reproduce up to 50 to 60 times within a person's lifetime before they die off. However, the skin and hair and nail cells can reproduce much more than that. The actual rate of reproduction for hair, skin, and nail cells depends on individual body chemistry. Of course, without the life-giving flow of blood, none of this would be possible. It is the red blood cell that is the body's primary way of delivering oxygen and nutrients to the body tissues. And red blood cell reproduction is fascinating because it requires the coordination of many essential organs in order to maintain balanced blood levels. Red, Red blood cells are also known as erythrocytes, and erythropoiesis is the development process by which new erythrocytes are produced. You starting to feel like you're getting a science lesson? All right, there's a point to it, all right? Hang in there. The production is stimulated, stimulated by a hormone synthesized by the kidney. The main site for the embryonic stage of the red blood cell, however, is in the liver. 
And then the mature red blood cell, it matures in the bone marrow of the large bones at a rate of 2 million per a second in a healthy adult. The most responsible agent for growth of the human body. We've looked a little bit at some of the cells and how they reproduce the blood and how it's formed using both the the liver and the kidney and the bone marrow. But the most responsible agent for the growth of the human body in general is HGH or what's called human growth hormone. It is HGH that stimulates growth, cell reproduction and regeneration in the human body. The effects of HGH on the cells of the body can generally be described as anabolic, which, get this, means building the body up. And that's exactly what's going on inside of the body. It it helps increase your height, and it also has other effects on the body, such as increasing the calcium retention, which uh, strengthens and promotes mineralization of the bone. It increases muscle mass. It increases protein synthesis, and it stimulates the growth of all the internal organs. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, I'm telling you all this because just as God, in his infinite wisdom, designed the human body to grow and to build itself up with complicated processes that depend on each other, organ depends upon organ. Red blood cell depends upon other cells in the body. HGH is what makes it all come together. And so just as the human body is reproducing itself organically, the church is to be reproducing itself organically as well. By organically, I mean from within. Like it's a work that the body does within itself. And God has called us as a body to reproduce ourselves, to grow, to build ourselves up in love. And so from Christ, the whole body is gifted, and each one of us uses his gift for the benefit of others. And when we do that properly, then the whole body matures. And so we must recognize that we belong to each other, that we need each other, that no matter how insignificant we think our contribution is, we are dependent on one another as a church in order to properly grow and to build each other up in love. There are no little people in the church of God, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, and there are no little jobs. Whatever you're doing for the glory of Christ as you serve in the church in general and then in the local church here at Placerita means a lot to God. And just as a physical body needs red corpuscles and a liver more than it needs a handsome face or beautiful hair. So we all play a vital part in the lifeblood of the church. We are all necessary. We can all contribute. And when we do, we will see our body grow in maturity into the head of Jesus Christ. God has a growth plan for the church. And in this series, we've talked about how God desires to grow his church, not through human innovation or successful marketing campaigns or even cultural relativism, that God's plan for growing the church is in this passage. And it includes in verse 11, God giving gifted people to the church. That's why he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor teachers to help equip the church. Last week, we talked about just that, that these gifted people are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that the pastor elders do the equipping, the saints receive that instruction and that teaching, and they begin to grow and to uh, begin to work and to carry out the function of the church. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the building up of the body. And so I've broken our message into three simple headings this morning that will help us better understand how the body of Christ is to be built up in love. The first major heading, if you're following along in your outline, is just simply this you must not remain as a child. Look at verse 14. We read, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And so here we're really learning, your first blank there if you're taking notes, is that children are immature. It's what we're really learning here, just kind of a general reference, that we're no longer to be as children because children are assumed as being those that are immature. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel of John chapter 3. 
John chapter 3, and let's look at this familiar story for just a moment about Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, right? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these these signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born Again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, you're familiar with that passage being the marquee passage of the doctrine of regeneration, and it is. It talks about how we're born again by the Spirit and not by the flesh. This passage obviously has a premier focus on the idea of being born. In fact, the word born is used eight times in those eight verses. And I'm simply just taking a look at that so that we can understand that the first thing that we've got to understand is that we all start uh, in the Christian life as children. It all starts with the fact that there's a day where you're born, and so you are obviously immature. You were just born. You were just born again, and it takes time to grow. And so the idea of being a child isn't one that we should think of as being all the time derogatory, for we begin the Christian life as a baby and then as a child. But sometimes we forget about that. We need to remember that being a child is a good thing, but you can't stay as a child forever. In fact, there are many medical needs where HGH is infused into the lifeblood of a growing child to help them grow properly. And the idea is that God did not design his body spiritually to all remain babies and children forever. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 is a passage where it's labeled for us that God desires us to grow from little children to young men to spiritual fathers. And so here, uh, John writes in 1 John 2, 12 through 14, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, I wanted you to look at this passage again, because it clearly talks about distinctions in spiritual growth between the children who simply know who the father is, as they grow and mature, they become young men who are strong and able to overcome the evil one. And as they mature still more, they're then referenced as fathers who are the most mature group of all. In other words, the goal of the Christian life is not to remain as a child, but to grow into a young spiritual man and then into a spiritual father. Now turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 helps us see this as we now are eager to grow as those newborn babes. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2, Peter writes this, like newborn infants, long for the pure milk, pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And so there's a challenge for all of us to realize like, wow, when I first come to Christ, I am a newborn babe. I am an infant and God has commanded. And what ought to be the natural reaction to a new regenerated heart is you begin to long for the word of God. Nobody has to tell you to spend time in God's word. You long for it. Nobody has to tell you, hey, you need to read your Bible today. That's what Christians do. No, those Christians that are growing and that are eager don't see reading the Bible as a have to or I ought to. They can't wait to get into God's word each and every day so that they can grow up in their salvation. 
so that they can grow up from being that child to being that young man to being that spiritual father. We, gotta, we need to be spending time in God's word because we cannot remain as a child. And one reason that you can't remain and stay as an immature child is that your second point here on your outline is that children are unstable. Children are, they're precious, right? But they are unstable. I mean, the Bible repeatedly tells us that we need to walk in wisdom. And if we lack wisdom, as we all do, especially children, then we need to ask God for it, right? Isn't it James 1.5 that says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given unto him. In that same text of James, which is familiar to us, he then says yes, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable, in all of his ways. A lot of the same words used there in James 1 and here in our text in Ephesians 4:14. The idea is that we're not to remain as children because if we do, we will be tossed to and fro. There, there'll be no stability there. There'll be these waves that are carrying us around by every wind of doctrine. I think of children as being unstable because they've not matured enough sometimes to kind of stick with their decision of what to do. I mean, have you ever been with a toddler and you decided for whatever reason you were going to let him or her choose that day what they're going to wear? Big mistake, right? That you might be there 10 or 15 minutes. Do you want to wear this shirt? Yeah, I want to wear that shirt. You start to pull this shirt down like, no, 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 I don't want to wear that shirt. I want to wear that shirt. And you could go on and on and on because children are fickle sometimes when it, when it has to do with sticking to the choices that they make about something as simple as what they're going to wear on that day. Now, I've known some grown women to do the same thing, but not, not in our house. But that does happen in some houses. Some women change clothes a few times before they head off to going out, right? But the idea is that we've got to be careful that we can't remain immature. Have you ever uh, taken a child or, or, or played uh, with, you know, some children, maybe you're babysitting, and they're, and they're playing with toys? And all of a sudden, this other child is interested in this ch- toy, and this child's interested in that toy, and they go from toy to toy to toy to toy. They're unstable, They move from one thing to the next. Or have you ever taken a child to an ice cream shop where they have the opportunity to choose from one of 31 flavors? How in the world will they ever make the right choice? And the idea is that spiritually speaking, a child can be the same way, unstable. They could be They could be at risk, look at the end of verse 14, from human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. You understand the devil and his instruments of false teachers are hungry to eat up spiritually immature children who don't stick with the truth. In fact, Romans chapter 16, you see I listed just a couple of verses there to the side in your outline. You don't have to turn to all of them, but Romans 16, 17, and 18 says this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So if you remain as an immature, unstable, naive, spiritual child, watch out, because there are those who are coming to devour and to deceive. And so we're warned here, don't be like a child. Be discerning about what is going on. Be discerning about what's being taught Be discerning to take everything you hear, no matter if it's from this pulpit or any pulpit, that you take it straight to the word of God. You begin to compare what you're hearing and what you're learning from that preacher on the radio or that preacher on the internet or that book you're reading, and you bring it back to the word of God. Paul warns the immature Christians, not only uh, there in Rome, but also in Corinth. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. It says, but I am afraid... As the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus 
than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You know what Paul's saying? He's concerned that the Corinthians would somehow listen to another speaker, another spirit, another gospel, and they would somehow accept it too quickly before they look into it with wisdom and discernment as a mature Christian ought, that they might be led astray. And then he warns the believers in Galatia with the same warning, Galatians 1, 6 and 7, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not the one Uh, Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so Paul is writing to these believers in Rome and these believers in Corinth and these believers in Galatia. And he's warning them, be careful that you don't get uh, led astray to a different gospel. In fact, down in Galatians 3.1, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. And yet the Galatian believers were tempted with a legalistic type type gospel of having to keep the Old Testament Judaism cultural law in order to somehow gain favor with God. And so the idea is if this can happen to believers at Rome, and if this can happen to believers in Corinth and believers in Galatia, don't you think that this could happen to you? It could happen to me? That if we remain as children, we can get off because Satan is cunning and he's crafty and he's got evil schemes. And so we must not remain as children who are immature, unstable. And third here, you see that children are gullible. They're gullible. I mean, I have to be careful with my own kids because sometimes I might be joking with them and say something to them and Lisa reminds me honey don't tell them that they're just kids you know I might be coming after one of them and say I want to throw you in the pool and they're like ah you know and they start running around I'm like hey I'm just kidding you know it's just dad here you know you know so the idea is with kids obviously they could just believe anything I mean you could tell them hey it snowed last night and they go look out the window you know that would be cruel right especially here southern Cal Uh, but you know the idea is that you could just tell them anything and they'll believe it And so all of us, if we're spiritually immature, we could be so gullible to believe almost anything. Maybe turn to this one with me, if you will, in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, we read really about this warning of not listening to the arguments of the world because you you don't want to be gullible, like an immature child who just believes anything the world says just because they seem to be all scholarly or respected. Colossians 2 4 through 8 says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, the world uses human reasoning, and their argumentation can seem somewhat plausible. But the Bible says, continuing in verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he's saying, hey, I'm not with you to help you discern all that stuff, but you've got my spirit and the spirit of God lives within you. And if the spirit of God lives within you, then you ought to remain firm in Christ, not in what's popular culturally. Verse six, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, be a follower of Christ, walk as he walked. Verse seven, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Friends, this is not just some passage for the church in Colossae. While it was written originally to those who were struggling with an early incipient Gnosticism, it still applies in principle to each one of us today and you've got to beware I mean, I just feel like in the evangelical world today, we are so gullible. Somebody tells a story about something they saw. Somebody writes this about a vision they had. Somebody writes a book about this, and the Christian church just gobbles it all up. We need to be more discerning than that. We need to be careful that we're rooted and we're grounded and established in the faith, the faith that was revealed once for all, the faith that was revealed the whole body and doctrine of the Christian faith. 
We need to be careful that we're paying attention to that which Christ taught, which the apostles elaborated on, which the prophets also proclaimed. We have a responsibility. In fact, uh, you're there in a, maybe in Ephesians 4, our main text. Look at the end of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 warns us, talking about how be careful for those, those human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. That word schemes is used of the devil in Ephesians 6, 11, where we're warned, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so the warning of verse 14 is no longer uh, to be spiritually immature like a child because of human cunning or trickery. We're warned here not to, not to be affected by the craftiness, which could be translated also as treachery or deceitful schemes. These are all really synonyms describing what could happen to that immature child who is unstable and gullible. And so in a sense here, he's telling the church, grow up. You cannot stay immature. You can't keep doing what you're doing spiritually and grow. You got to put forth a little bit of effort to get into the word of God and to do some study yourself. And in order to build up, you have to grow up. So this passage is all about building each other up. But he's saying, hey, you can't build each other up if you're immature. You got to grow up first so that you're now ready to build up the body by speaking the truth in love. And so that transitions us into our next heading, if you will. You must grow up into Christ. You must grow up. You cannot remain as a child. You must grow up into Christ. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We are called to grow up into Christ. These last two verses, verses 15 and 16, tell us about the proper process of growth in the body of Christ. And the first part of that process would be A there in your outline. It's about speaking the truth in love to each other. Speaking the truth in love to each other. Now, if you have your ESV, notice that the first word in verse 15 is rather. If you're reading from NASB, it probably says but, right? So the idea here is there's an adversative day, which is a conjunction to show that there's a contrast here. Don't be like the immature children who are getting led astray and deceived by the cunning and the craftiness and the deceitful schemes of the world. Rather, but, in other words, there's a contrast, don't be like that, but rather you need to be, I need to be, we all need to be doing what? Speaking the truth in love. Now, in the original language, speaking the truth is all just one word. It's the word truth, aletheia. It's the word truth, aletheia, in the verb form. Literally translated, it could be truthing. You need to be truthing one another. That's what we need to be doing. We need to be constantly grabbing the truth and helping apply it to each other's life. And so here is a great emphasis on the fact that we all need to know truth. Notice that the word here is not caruso, which would have been preaching. The word here isn't uh, restricted only for an elder, though we know we have gifted men given to the church in verse 11. The word here is rather to be applied to the whole body as we're truthing one another. We're speaking the truth in love to one another, which means we need to be knowing biblical doctrine. In order to truth somebody, in order to speak the truth to somebody, you have to know and understand what God's word says. We, we have to remain staunchly biblical. Listen, you can't always just say, well, I'll go check and see what Adam says or what Dr. Barrick has to say. I'll go check, you know, with one of the elders at the church. Now, that's a good thing to do. But I'm just saying you want to grow up and mature enough to where you can say, you know what, I'm going to do a little study on this myself. Because uh, your, your spiritual mentor can't be at every place at once with you in that ministry that you lead or that conversation that you're having at work or that hard question you get at home. You need to be a godly man and a godly woman to say, you know what, let me study that and get back to you. We need to be truthing one another because the pastors and elders and the gifted people to the church can't be everywhere at once, which means we're all required to be growing and to be truthing one another. 
this word truthing is used one other place in, in the New Testament. Hold your place there in Ephesians and turn back to Galatians. So turn to the left, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4 and look at the context it's used here. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 16. Here, in kind of this context of a false gospel, maybe I'll just start uh, reading in verse 12, okay? So it says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God. As Christ Jesus, when then has become the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So in other words, he's just saying, look, I was trying to warn you guys about some false teaching. That's what Galatians is all about. I was going to tell you the truth. Verse uh, 13 says clearly that he was preaching the gospel to them. And then he says, because I'm truthing you, are you going to uh, get angry at me or upset at me? Are you going to come after me because I'm truthing you? In other words, Paul was being very careful to stick to the gospel to the Corinthians. And you would think that would be an overly simplistic thing. Like, well, everybody knows the gospel. Well, my friends, it's the gospel today that is under attack. It's not about uh, peripheral arguments far to the left or far to the right. It's about the simple gospel. And if we're not equipped to truth one another or speak the truth to each other in love, then we're going to fail on the opportunity to build each other up as a body. Let me give you an example. This week, I had the opportunity to preach or teach at a Christian school camp. And the gospel was the focus of our two or three days together. Inevitably, one of the biggest questions that came up from some of these young junior high students was, can you be a practicing homosexual and go to heaven? Now, that's a very hot question in today's culture. And most Christians kind of skirt that issue big time by saying, well, who am I to judge? Or only God knows what might happen in a situation like that. But when those questions come up, you have an opportunity to do some truthing. You have an opportunity because that question messes with the gospel. And the question that's being asked is really, can I continue in unrepentant sin and be a believer? In other words, do I come to Christ when I get saved, abandoning all of my sin and all of my sinful desires to embrace Christ and to accept all that he says about all of my life? Or is the gospel about you can keep certain sins active knowingly, ongoingly, and unrepentantly, and yet still claim Christ is Lord. My friends, that's a question about the gospel. That's what the question is about. It's about we need to speak the truth in love in the context of the gospel because that's a gospel question. And so that's part of how I answered the students with what I just said. And then I just had them, well, look, let's look at what the Bible says, right? Because we don't want to be deceived by what's popular or different people say. So what does God's word say? Turn with me quickly, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and look at verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Here we read this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So really the answer to the question of does an ongoing practicing homosexual go to heaven or not is the same answer that would be given to any of these sins listed here or any sin listed in the Bible. If anyone is an ongoing adulterer or an ongoing idolater or an ongoing theft or ongoing struggling with their greed or being drunken and they're not repenting of their sin but continue to live in it day in and day out, then they're not going to heaven. We cannot continue in our sin without repentance and go to heaven. Then I asked the students this. I said, hey, what if I told you that I'm a believer and I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, but every day I kill somebody? Every day. That's just what I do. 
That's just, you know, I just have a desire to kill somebody like every day. So I'm a Christian. I go to church. I say my prayers. And, but every day I find somebody and I pick them up. You're dead today. You're dead tomorrow. You're dead the next day. You're dead the next day. I couldn't do it to you, Dr. Mays. But anyway, you know, the idea is if every day you kill somebody, if that's your habit, if that's what you do, and that's what you embrace, would you call me a Christian? But I said, I love Jesus. And I, I just, I mean, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But if I kill somebody every day and I don't repent of that and I embrace that lifestyle, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or what if I was a thief? And so every day I rob a bank of five grand, like every day. Every, that's just what I do. I go in and I take five grand from the bank every single day. Am I a Christian? But I say I'm a Christian. I try to do the right thing, but every day from here to the rest of my life, I'm robbing a bank. Well, according, you guys are hesitating. You, according to this passage, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. Repentance is a change of lifestyle. Repentance is, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me for, help me to never do again. Now, if that's the heart of anybody in this list, then it could be very well they're on their way to heaven. But if the person in this list, whether it's homosexuality or one of the other uh, sins that are listed here, has embraced that as a lifestyle and part of their identity and who they are, the Bible could not be more clear that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 26, just so you can see a little bit more of an addendum thought on that. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 26, you know the passage well, but basically we have here that uh, people exchange the truth of God for a lie. And then in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Okay, again, here's the whole list. It kind of started off with homosexuality and idolatry, but now he adds to that a whole list again of ongoing unrepentant sins to which he says this about in verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So the answer to the question is anybody who practices any sin without repenting and asking for God's help and constantly fighting against so that they might attain God's help and strength to overcome temptation deserves to die. With that is implied the judgment of God. Then notice this. The very last phrase then says, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In other words, not only do those who practice these sins deserve to die and deserve the judgment of God, but those who give approval to those who practice them. So if you or I were to give approval to somebody to live an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle, and then at the same time tell them that they may still be a Christian, you have been deceived. You are a spiritually immature child. You have given yourself over to human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. You no longer understand what the true gospel is. My friends, it does not take a pastor to say that. It does not take an elder from your church to speak so clearly and so passionately about what the Bible says about this issue. It is your responsibility and my responsibility as we grow up to speak these kinds of truths to those that we interact with in love. It's, it's necessary that we speak these truths, that we're all truthing each other. But notice also the idea is to do it in love. We don't just speak the truth with emphatic, you know, um, 
you know, anger or out of, out of sheer, you know, hate because the Bible commands that we love our enemies. And so in light of this, in James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on Ephesians, he, he gives a great challenge of the importance of including with the truth of biblical doctrine, that idea there of speaking it in love. And so look at these five truths that were listed there in his commentary. Number one, truth without love is bitter orthodoxy. So if all you're about is the truth, and as I was just saying what I said about that subject, you were like, amen, amen, you preach it, bro. But there's no love in your heart because of a situation of someone you know of who maybe struggles and something that's close to you that you can have a little bit of patience and understanding that dealing with sin can be tough, then you're getting too caught up in this orthodoxy that could become bitter in your heart. Truth is a principle, but so is love. And so truth without love is bitter orthodoxy. We're told to love our enemies and to say these things in kind and loving ways. Hey, I love you. But I think what you're doing dishonors God, and I don't believe that you'll go to heaven if you continue in an unrepentant way. I mean, you say it lovingly, but you say what you say truthfully. It's speaking the truth in love. Or look at number two. If, you, if you're not careful and you only speak the truth, but you remove love, sanctification without love is self-righteousness. In other words, if you're trying to grow in your faith without depending on the Holy Spirit to empower you to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, but you're doing these things on your own strength, then you are becoming self-righteous, thinking somehow you're getting closer to God based on the truth of your own effort, but you're not really understanding the true love of Christ. Or how about number three? Joy without love is hedonistic reveling. If you are overjoyed about something, but the focus is on ourselves and how it makes us feel instead of on the gospel and on God and his glory, then it's really a hedonistic pursuit. Or number four, mission without love is starch colonialism. Your effort to convert people to your culture instead of to your Christ could be accused of being starch colonialism if you're not doing it with love. That it's Christ that you want to bring them to. And number five, unity without love is ecclesiastical tyranny. In other words, if we're lording over people and forcing people to do things at church with a selfish or a sinful motive, then that's not true identity. It's ecclesiastical tyranny. The idea is that we want to speak what we speak and lead how we lead with love, loving one another. And so Jesus here is telling, uh, or Paul rather, is obviously telling us to speak the truth in love. And then notice it says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so the next blank in your outline there is growing into Christ who is the head. Isn't this how Jesus did it? He spoke the truth, but he did so at love. He spoke the truth to, to the adulterer who was thrown at his feet. He spoke the truth to any sinner who came up to him. He told them the truth, but he did it in love because he's the head. He's the example. That word head, we've talked about a few times already in our studying Ephesians, but it's the word kephale, and it simply means that he has the ultimate authority. It's used in Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church. It's used again in Ephesians 5 that wives are to submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself is its savior. So part of following the head of the body is speaking the truth in love, and as we're doing that, we're growing. We're maturing in every way into Christ, who is the head. Let's move on to our last point if we can. Number three, you must be joined together. Verse 16, you must be joined together. Look at verse 16 again. It says, from whom the whole body, so that's connected to Christ who's the head, and now from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So notice first here, your first sub point is that the whole body is joined together. I mean, you understand, if you're in Christ, you are joined to the head. You don't, you don't have a different body. You're, you're not somehow disconnected. You're joined together. The word joined simply means to be joined together with something else, that there's two parts that are joined. And part of what's being described here is maybe even Paul's thinking of that joint of the body. 
And those joints that you have in your human body, they fit perfectly together, don't they? they you have different kinds of joints. You have a, a ball and socket joint, like the shoulder joint or the hip joint, where it's kind of like, uh, you know, here's the socket and that end of the bone fits in there. But it fits perfectly, so it can turn just the way God designed it to. You have a hinge joint, like your elbow or your knee. They're just, they're just a function like that simple hinge, but those bones, the way God designed the end of those bones, they're shaped just right so that with the cartilage and the other things that are involved there and the synovial fluid, but they fit together so well. That's how God designed it to be. You have a saddle joint, which describes the joints of the vertebrae, that they sit there and they rest and sit on each other like a saddle, and God just kind of designed each one of those vertebrae in your backbone to, to fit together. They're joined together. You're all shaped like that. You're created in a special way, and guess what? You fit right here at Placerita Bible Church. You fit right here. You fit in God's kingdom generically, and I would appeal to you, if, you, if you're here and you feel like you don't fit, you do. Because it's the gospel that makes us fit together. We're joined together. Not only that, but secondly, the whole body is held together. Not only are we joined together, but we're held together. That word held means to bring together or to unite. Here, I'm I'm thinking a little bit about ligaments and tendons, right? I'm not saying that Paul was as scientific as maybe I'm being, but I'm just saying he's using that body analogy. And we all know and understand these things about the body, that you have ligaments and tendons. Ligaments hold bone to bone and tendons hold uh, muscle to bone. So here we're told that every uh, joint here is held together by every joint which is equipped Now, that word equipped is not the same word that we looked at last week, which meant training or instruction or mending, but rather it's the simple word of assistance or support. And so the idea is that each joint is assisted and supported so that it works properly. And that leads us right into our third sub-point here. The whole body is working together. So God joins us together. He holds us together, just like the physical body's joints are held together, so that we can work properly. Look again at, at, at what it says. It says, uh, they're joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. So that word working means energy or action. In other words, we're all in the body to be doing something. There's to be some action. Remember verse 12, we're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So whenever the body is lined up like it ought to be, then you begin to work properly. That word properly means measurement, or it could even mean poetic meter. It's almost like, man, when it's humming and it's all working well, it's a beautiful thing. When the body of Christ is humming and working together, it's a beautiful thing. But if you get your uh, joint out of joint, it is painful. You ever thrown a shoulder out of joint? A hip out of joint, you don't want to, all right? I have popped a shoulder in, and I've done a hip in an ER before when I was a PA, and it takes a lot of pain medication, all right? You can pop a shoulder in pretty quickly, but the idea is it's pretty painful. And when it's out of joint, it doesn't work properly. You can't really move your arm or that limb properly because it's out of joint. So the idea is that God desires that we as individuals are all shaped and fashioned by the love of Christ to where we fit together perfectly, so that we can do the proper work that God has designed us to do. I love that quote that I gave you in the bottom of the the discussion questions about from Brian Chappell says this, the church community functions because we are all called to be love contributors, not just love consumers. Don't you love that? So the idea is that we're all to be contributing something, speaking or truthing each other in love, speaking the truth in love. We're not just to be love consumers, but we're contributing so that the body may work the way it was designed. And that leads us to our last point here. The whole body is building itself up in love together. The whole body is building itself up together. Well, wait a minute. I, I thought it was Christ who built up his church, right? Christ is the one who causes you to be born again. And obviously, Christ matures us through his word and by the spirit of God. Well, that's true. But notice the emphasis here on the end of the passage is the body also has a responsibility to build itself up in love. Just like the human body regenerates itself. You're no longer attached to your mother through the umbilical cord. 
You are now a complete individual that is growing organically. And while we would never want to think of our body as functioning without the head, who is Christ, in a sense here, there's this emphasis of that we build each other up. That we do. We do it in Christ, in his strength, with his word. But in unity, we build each other up in love. And so as we finish this passage this morning, I thought it might be appropriate to give you these five take-home challenges, which really summarize verses uh, 1 through 16. So back to a big picture of Ephesians, 1 through 16 is all about walking in unity. And so let me just summarize this sermon by summarizing this whole, this whole greater context this way. Number one, do not forget that we are all one in Christ. That's what verses 1 through 6 was all about. Don't forget that we are all one in Christ. That's why we're part of one body. That's why we can build each other up because we're right here so close to each other because we're one in Christ. Number two, do not forget that we have all been gifted differently by Christ. We, we have different gifts and different abilities. And verses 7 through 11 talks about that to some degree, that we're all different. That's okay. There's different joints, different parts to the body. We're all different, but we're still one in Christ. Or number three, do not forget that we must be all, uh, we must all be about equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. I mean, your job here at the church is either you're equipping or you're working. And it should be that we're all doing a little bit of both. We're all equipping someone else and we're all working together to accomplish the work that God has called us to do. It's not just that the elders do the work or just the body. Remember from last week, we are working together. And then fourthly, do not forget that we must all do what we do by maturing in the fullness of Christ. We must be not remaining as children, but we must be maturing into that head, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, do not forget that we must all be dependent on each other. We must depend on one another to properly build up the body in love. I hope that as a result of this message and this whole series and this whole greater context of verses 1 through 16, that we could grow closer together as a body and that we could understand our role and our responsibility and that God would do great things this year at Placerita Bible Church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just look at such a clear passage that has so much uh, truth and so much application for us to think about this morning. And it's all because of Christ and the fact that we're seated with him in the heavenly realms, that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so therefore, God, I pray that our conduct would match our calling. I pray that we as a church would walk in unity. Thank you for the gifts you've given to our church and gifted men. Thank you for the fact that this church is all about equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And I pray, God, as we focus now on building each other up in love, that you would allow us to leave this morning with a great focus and a great desire and an incredible passion to love each other, to serve together, to build each other up, to speak the truth in love to one another. For Christ's glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.